Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, I'm joined by Damien Fay of Money To The Masses. Damien is a consumer champion and a keen DIY investor. He also hosts his own podcast, the Money To The Masses podcast. I've known Damien for several years now, and despite our differences over football, we are both passionate about educating and helping DIY investors. But we've never discussed, not even informally, our own investment journeys. So I'm interested to see where this conversation goes today. So we're going to be discussing what we both wish we knew when we made our first forays into the stock market. So let's get cracking. So um, as the guest, Damien, I'll pass the baton to you first. When did you first start investing and what was your first fund purchase? So to give you a backdrop, my career was in um, building portfolios for clients. And so therefore I started to learn about investments and funds for other people without having the money myself to actually invest. But of course, it was really interesting that you you bring up my first ever fund because it was it was back in 2007 that I bought this fund, um, 2007, 2008. And it, it reminds me of a lot of what's going on at the moment where you get fads. And back then, I mean, I was in my late 20s. And so it was the first time I'd really thought about, well, maybe I've got some money to put away and invest. but I bought a fund called the Jupiter China Fund. So it was one of the early China funds that existed. So it was invested in Chinese equities. And while building client portfolios, I'd obviously it formed a part of their diversified portfolios, but you saw how well it was doing. It was part of really almost a, a surge of interest in the whole brick phenomenon. So you're talking about things like emerging markets and Chinese equities were on a bit of a, a tear for a period of time. So anyway, I ended up putting £500 into this fund. And straight away, I mean, looking back now, I almost cringe at the, the, that I did that. And I put £500 in this fund. And there was no real sort of process I was following in terms of how long I was going to hold this fund for. And um, within, I think, three or four months, I'd, I'd made about 30% on this one fund because, as I say, there was just this surge of interest in China. And in the end, I ended up selling the fund, partly to take a profit, but more importantly, because I actually needed the money. So I took the money out and I had a profit, like I said, of about sort of 30%. And didn't think anything more of it. I used the money actually to pay for um, something to do with my wedding. And then after that, almost immediately, Chinese equities went on a bit of a slump. And it was quite funny because I'd learned that I was lucky. I, I just lucked out that I'd bought this fund, it done well, but then it started to turn along with other um, equities at the time. And I even went back and looked and to see how, how much would that be worth now if I'd held on to that fund. And it just shows you the ups and downs of investing. So I probably sold that fund for about £700 at the, at the time, not quite, yeah, about just more than that, so nearly £800. And actually, if I'd held on to it, for all these years rather than just selling out. It would have been, it would have actually doubled in value by the time we got to about um, 2020, so just before the pandemic. But I looked recently because obviously I'm involved in lots of fund research and uh, it would only be worth about £700 now because of the slump since. So it just shows you the whole journey around investing in particular fads, the um, narrative that changes and there's lots of things that happen that 
some of it is just momentum where people are piling in, but there's lots of macroeconomic stuff that you don't have any control over. So there are other things that I, I learned subsequently from that. And I don't know if you remember, Carl, but there was um, Anthony Bolton, famous fund manager, who had been very successful in his career. And he then went and launched a China fund uh, for Fidelity. And the fund didn't do very well. And in the end, he ended up um, leaving the fund. And he had a sort of a very uh, strong career. But of course, this was like a slight um, blot on that at the end. But it just showed you how difficult it is to make money in something that is uh, a new area. And even if you are somebody who's deemed to be very skillful at investing, you want, you're not going to get it right all the time. And that was then that whole learning curve of that if people can get it wrong, who are supposedly meant to be star fund managers, and you can get it right by just pure luck, that there is much more to investing than just putting money in and trying to make a quick buck. Because essentially, that's almost what I'd done by default. And although I didn't lose money on that, I learned that it was just down to, to, to luck in the end. And I think with the whole star manager, it brought up the whole thing of active versus passive funds. And there was lots of those learnings. So star managers, I mean, I don't believe them in at all. I'm not a person who would ever follow a manager. Um, I think there's uh, processes. I think there are funds will, um, every dog has its day. If there's something that the fund's chosen, a particular skew, then it will do well in a certain environment. Other environments, it won't. So there was a lot of learnings that came from that early purchase. And it was because I continued working in the industry that I learned them, I think. If I had been somebody who just gone and had more money to invest at that point, then, well, actually, I should say speculate, because that's what I was doing. I wasn't investing, I was speculating, really. Then I probably would have carried on. But I then learned the discipline more of investing for the long term. It's interesting that what you said about um, how that fund has performed over the very long term, so over, well, over the last 15 years since you first bought it. If you, if you'd have held from then, you'd have, you know, you'd made seven, eight hundred pounds, which is what you actually cashed in after a couple of months of owning it. So I do think with a lot of these specialist funds, particularly ones that focus on a particular country or they invest in a commodity or a particular theme, they don't half blow hot and cold. So I do, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of, you know, buying and holding for the long term, but I do think with these specialist strategies, it's, I think you can get really burnt, depending on when you buy. But also over the long term, and that, 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 the performance of that China fund proves it, sometimes it's, it's not best holding it for the long term. Sometimes, you know, when the economic environment changes, when sentiment changes, then you, you may have to get out of it. Yeah, and I agree. If you look at the performance of that fund or any particular, I mean, there's different assets, if you look over time, that have had their period in the in the sun. And it might be because of, if you look back at last year, it would have been funds that if it was a bond fund that had like a lot, lot of duration, it was very sensitive to interest rate hikes, then it did poorly. But then as soon as that starts to change, it will therefore, on the flip side, probably do well. It start, what, it, what it does is it teaches you to understand what you're holding. And that was the thing that learned over time was you need to know what you're holding, when it works well, and when it doesn't. Because there are going to be periods where funds do and don't work well. And some of that won't be down to the individual fund. It'll be down to the theme itself, the sector, something going on macro. But often it may be down to what the fund's actually holding because the manager has a viewpoint on 
something in particular. And we've seen it with ethical funds. So I could have been doing this conversation with you in 15 years' time, and I could have said, oh, I bought a particular ethical fund that was flying. But then what you do, if you look at ethical funds, the reason they were doing well in the last few years, and we talk about before last year, was because they tend to have quite a big exposure to things like technology stocks and smaller companies. And that, by their nature, were very strong performing funds in the years prior to 2022. But of course, when interest rates then started to be pushed up, those sectors were impacted because obviously uh, funding dried up and technology stocks tend to underperform when interest rates are going up. And so therefore, ethical funds, if you looked at last year, were some of the worst performers versus what you'd probably call dirty funds, which are things that had oil and gas in them. And again, it's just the environment that you were in that holding a particular theme for a long term, you are going to probably have some very um, big periods of outperformance and underperformance. But I think you have to understand what's under the bonnet. So if you look at um, periods where they perform well and poorly, they give you great insights as to what's going on. Because if you had looked at those periods of underperformance, you would have looked at an ethical fund and said, look, technology stocks are also underperforming. It gives you a great hint of what's probably in there before you even look at the uh, fact sheets. But of course, fact sheets don't always have all the information on there. So um, I'm with you. There's definite themes that come along. And the other thing I'd point out is that I've learned over the years that marketing is a massive driver in the fund industry. So fund houses will launch funds with a theme that is very on trend. And I mean, I have no doubt that we'll probably be seeing AI funds at some point in the not too distant future, because with artificial intelligence meant to be taking over the world, then that's a trend that people will want to ride. And this all goes back to diversification, you know, in terms of, you know, that is one of the golden rules of investing, you know, investing in different types of funds. And I think one of the one of the mistakes that some investors make is they buy too many funds and they buy too many funds that are similar. And in my view, every fund that you own, it should be bringing something unique or different to the party. Um, you know, you don't want to be holding five or six UK active funds because if you do that, then you may as well buy a passive fund because the, the likelihood is that you're going to own hundreds of companies. So you're better off just replicating the market much cheaper through a passive fund. So when I started investing, it's just over a decade ago, I wanted to pick a couple of funds that were quite different from one another. So, um, so I invested in four funds, and obviously I'm in a, I was in a position, still in, still I'm in a position now where I interview fund managers. That's a big part of my job. So I picked Marlborough Special Situations, which is a, a fund that invests in UK, predominantly UK large and mid cap stocks. Um, I picked that on the basis that I, um, I really thought that the fund manager Giles Hargreave really stood out for me. Um, you know, I meet a lot of fund managers, and I, you know, I do believe. There is a sort of creme de la creme. You know, like, like in other industries, like in football, I do believe there are the likes of Lionel Messi and Christ Cristiano Ronaldo in full management. I don't know whether you'd appreciate me um, describing them in that sort of way. But um, so that was one that I picked. Um, I also picked Scottish Mortgage. Um, similar reasons. I thought James Anderson was a visionary. I thought the investment approach was um, very unique. And I liked the fact that he was investing in, you know, technology companies that were potentially going to change the world. And I think a lot of the, the stocks that he picked performed very well. Um, under his management and um, I still own Scottish Mortgage today. And then I also picked, it was called Fair State, but now it's changed its name. So it's Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders Fund. Um, 
I think over the long term that has been a very good fund for the Asia Pacific region. I, I am, you know, I'm, maybe I'm a bit of a sucker for stories. A lot of my money goes towards the emerging market regions because the, these these economies they're growing much faster than the developed worlds. You know, there's growing middle classes. I, I just see, I just think there's a strong investment case there. And then the fourth one that I picked, which was a mistake, was it was an absolute return fund managed by Chris Benodi. I think it was called CFOD, Absolute Return, but it's subsequently changed its name since then. Now, I have to hold my hands up and admit this was a mistake. It was naivety on my part when I when I started investing. Um, I just saw how well it was doing. It was it was at the top of its sector. It was well ahead of others. I thought to myself, I fancy a bit of that. But what I didn't appreciate was the strategy. So it um, so invests in so it has the ability to short companies, so profit from when company share prices fall. There was a short time period when it, it fell. 15, 20%. And I was just like, I don't want a fund to do that. Um, you know, it's not a share, it's a fund. It owns, you know, a basket of stocks. I just don't want to invest in something that can be that volatile, basically. From now on, I've invested in funds that I understand. And, um, you know, broadly, um, most of my investments are in investment trusts because um, I, do, I do believe that investment trusts are a superior option, in my opinion, for DIY investors because they have a number of structural advantages that you know private investors can use to their advantage including the fact that you can buy on a discount you can buy the underlying investments on the cheap so with investment trust what i really like is for an income investor i mean they are i, I would say they should be the core of what you're, you're using you know if you're building an income portfolio with uh, a basis of funds because of the way they can retain income over years and use that to pay out to the holders of that investment trust. So it means that you get like obviously the, the City of London Investment Trust that can raise its payouts for like five decades in a row. That is, that's crazy. You look at any other unit trust or fund out there, they can't do that because of that structural difference, as you mentioned. So they, so the unit trust, they can't, they don't, well, they're not allowed to retain that income and then pay it out over time. And so that makes it a much more attractive proposition to look at investment trusts. Um, if you're going to be investing for income and drawing that natural yield from your portfolio. So um, I, 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 I totally agree with you, but going back to your other point about cutting your losses. Now, I um, run a, a portfolio now that I look at and buy different uh, funds, and I regularly cut my losses, but I don't actually look at the entry point that I buy a fund. So what I'm doing is looking at the overall performance of a portfolio, seeing how a fund is performing, but I don't look at it and sit there and think, how much did I make profit or loss on that fund? So if a fund is not working in that environment, so like we had in 2022, a very definite period that the world changed, you could hold on to a fund that you'd bought going into that and realise that it wasn't going to work. So if you bought an index-linked guilt fund going into that environment and it was starting to underperform badly, then there is an argument for switching to something else. So I know you are technically crystallizing a loss, but just holding on to something forever is not logical either. So what I don't do is look at the, how much did I make or lose on that? I'm thinking of the portfolio as a whole, and I'm looking at the headline value of it, and therefore tweaking my portfolio as I go along. And so there'll be other parts of the portfolio that make, might make a lot of money, but then I'll still, prune those as time goes on and might remove them because there's better opportunities elsewhere. It's more about looking at the better opportunities elsewhere rather than the absolute value. So um, for me, that makes it less emotional. 
because that's the problem. I think a lot of people get very wedded to a fund or an investment that they have and think, I can't sell it because I don't want to crystallise a loss or I really like that fund for whatever reason. I've had that for like years, but that's not a great reason to hold it. So take, for example, my Jupiter China fund. Just because that fund didn't perform very well doesn't mean that there probably wasn't another China fund that performed much better over that period of time. So why hold and be loyal to one fund when you can have the same theme if you wanted to have that as part of a small part of your portfolio, but choose a different fund. So that's why the whole reviewing of a portfolio, I think, is key. And like you said there, some of it you'll there's nothing wrong with picking losers. We're all going to do that. It's about the amount that you get right and wrong and then the scale of the profits you make on the ones that you get right versus the ones you um, get wrong. So the sort of losses, the profits versus the losses. So again, it's that diversification element. And do you know what? The biggest thing I think I've learned over the years is to be boring. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being boring because trying to limit some of the drawdowns will help you over the long term. And so trying to get too crazy with your investments, always trying to be on the latest trend. I think you just got to keep with a process that you like, whatever your process is, and if it works, then stick with it. But that makes it unemotional because I think what happens is some people tend to get too emotional and they'll, they'll cash out. So when we picked our first funds, when we both started investing, you, you know, you picked a China funds, I picked a couple of funds and, you know, majority of them were very adventurously invested. But for a lot of people, um, particularly those that don't want to pick their own funds, multi-asset funds are potentially a good starting point for investors, particularly passively managed multi-asset funds. I'm thinking of Vanguard, Life Strategy, Range. So in hindsight, do you think that you may have been better off picking one of those funds when you started? I suppose, though, when you started, they, those products weren't launched. And they didn't exist. So the thing is with those products, they I was investing at that point pre-financial crisis. So when we're talking about, well, I wasn't really investing, I was almost speculating at that point. But then when subsequently I was investing, obviously things like Vanguard were launched. But Vanguard is a really interesting, the Vanguard Life Strategy Funds. If you go online, all the uh, buy and hold investors and passive advocates are saying, just buy this fund, you can't go wrong. But then 2022 happened and it went wrong. Because that's why if you went and look in the uh, Financial Times, Vanguard even did an advertorial. Well, it wasn't advertorial, it was... They did a piece in there that was explaining the performance of their life strategy funds because they were starting to get a lot of kickback about how the funds were underperforming the wider market of their sectors. And that was because, again, another great example, you then need to understand what was in a life strategy fund. Why was it doing well before? Why was it suddenly not doing so well? And part of that was down to the um, duration, the interest rate sensitivity of the bond part of the portfolio. So if you looked at the one, the, the versions of the life strategy range that had the highest bond exposure, they were almost doing worse because they was they were more exposed to that downturn in bond markets. And of course, last year was, some people saying, was a once in a century event in markets. But you never know what's going to happen next. But it was another great example of you need to know what you're holding just because they were always topping the charts in terms of performance and they're very cheap. It was almost like we don't have to worry about research anymore. Life strategy, Vanguard's got it wrapped up. But of course, now people have realised that that it isn't that simple. But then having said that, I do like the range. I think they're very good. I think they're very good passive solutions for people. Um, in fact, that if somebody was going to be investing for their children, for example, and they want something that's going to be very simple to buy and hold over the long term, and even their children might get engaged with, something like that is, is great. So I do really like them. I think they're great. 
But there's nothing wrong with this idea of having a core to a portfolio. So I, I don't really understand this active versus passive debate that goes on. Because every bit of research that I tend to see that says that passives better or actives are better, always start from a point of view of trying to prove uh, an assumption um, or theory that the person who's writing a piece of research wants. So the ones that are normally produced saying passives are great and normally done by passive fund houses, the ones that say active fund management is best or has periods where it's doing really well, like in 2022, are normally produced by active fund houses. And so I think it's whatever works at any time. You can have a blend. It doesn't have to be either or. And that's the thing I don't understand. So you can have a passive core for most of your money, but then on the outside, have some of the bit more um, exciting, esoteric stuff that you pick things that you want to invest in. Because the problem with it, with passives is if you did want to get onto a theme that is something that's your money, you should be allowed to invest in what you want. So if you wanted to say, no, I do think AI is the next big thing, and you work in an industry, for example, that you have knowledge of a particular industry that is niche, but you sit and think, I want to invest in this, then you could do that. And probably the best way you're going to be able to do that is via a, an active fund where a manager has a similar viewpoint or has some exposure to that. Because it isn't often that you can get a, a an ETF that is exactly on point what you want. And often they're very broad indices. And I mean, you see that if you hold a, a passive investment, even a global one, they're mostly exposed to, well, majority tends to be focused on the US because of market cap. Well, then when Tesla's share price falls, your portfolio starts to fall and you're not sort of wondering why. And it's partly because of Elon Musk. And it's all of these things, as long as you understand, but I, I'm a fan of them, of the life strategy funds. I think they're a very good solution. I think the costs are amazing. They're a very good benchmark. But I think it oversimplifies things just to say you should only have that because there are periods of underperformance like anybody's going to have. I completely agree. Um, and also on your points with the, you know, the active versus passive fund debate, which you know I've written a lot about over the years. I just find that, you know, both sides of the debate, they just won't meet in the middle. Like, you know, they, 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 are, they will so strongly advocate, I'm a passive investor and this is why. And, I, and then, you know, the active management industry will obviously advocate why active is much better. There's not, there's not very much people in the industry saying what we're saying. That, you, know, the, the, you know, for most investors, having a blend, having a mix and match approach is a, you know, is a sensible um, strategy. For investors, especially like under core satellite approach, like you said, you know, if you have say seventy percent of the portfolio in core holdings, which would include passive, and then thirty percent in satellite holdings, where you can have a bit more spice, have a bit more fun. That's where you know the you know the the more sort of thematic sort of funds like technology could go in that sort of portion, depending on your risk profile and you know how long that you um, you're prepared to invest for. But with with these active versus passive studies as well. I mean, I don't know whether it's just me. I don't know if you agree with this, but um, I always feel like it's like, yeah, the average passive fund beats the average active fund. But I think that's to be expected because because of the fees involved. But when when I, and when I see that, I think, but I don't want to buy the average active fund. I'm not, you know, I, I want to buy an active fund that's going to be like in the top ten percent. I know that, and I know that before you buy an active fund, you don't know that that's going to happen in advance. But you know, you'd like to think actually, my expectations are that it's going to do. You know, hopefully, it's going to do well over time, and it will not be an average performer. Yeah, and you can't buy the average. The average is a notional figure that's been created that from the the range of performances. So, it's going back to your earlier point. Is that it actually ties really nicely to something you mentioned really 
early on in the in the podcast about if you want to invest your money and you start to buy active funds, there is a point beyond which, and I remember doing a, a load of research on it to try and find out the number um, of funds. If you were in, say, the UK all company sector and you've got a range of funds, active ones, at what point does it become pointless because you're losing that diversification element? You mentioned it very right at the beginning because you start moving towards the market and because of the herd mentality that happens with fund managers, because oddly it's one of those jobs, if you stray too far from the pack, then you're likely to get the chop. So if you're outperforming, that's great. But as soon as you're underperforming, so there's always that tendency to just mirror each other because safety in numbers. And so therefore, that's why you tend to get that herding thing that happens with active. So you want to pick funds that are doing things differently. So you mentioned, I think the number you said was about five. Well, funny enough, you're almost bang on. The number of funds that you start to buy from a sector, as soon as you get above three or four, you are ultimately just buying the same thing. And it's just me, you're doing no diversification benefits. I tend to only have one, two, maybe, from a, from a, a sector. Maybe three, depends. But they normally do something very different. And that's why I would end up buying them, because you want something that's going to be adding to your portfolio that will perform in certain, certain circumstances. Because you can't guarantee that a fund manager is going to do be a top performer. You don't know. But you want to buy something that's different. Otherwise, you might as well go and just buy that tracker that tracks the market. So I, I'm with you that if you're trying to outperform or you're just trying to grow your wealth, then, yeah, the way you can do that is by looking at a fund and understanding what the manager is investing in. I think we've, we've given um, listeners, hopefully, a lot of food for thought there. We've spoken about diversification. We've spoken about, you know, it's important to review your portfolio a couple of times a year. Don't be afraid to cut losses. And um, something we haven't talked about actually is rebalancing over time. I think that's also very important. And also, I think just a final sort of lesson is to, you know, don't give up and to, to learn from your mistakes. I think that's a perfect summary. And just on that one, we did mention rebalancing and uh, looking at your portfolio. When you look at the numbers and do the analysis, actually, once a year is sufficient. We did the numerical data and actually worked it out. If you do it too frequently, then you end up, especially when you're using things like unit trust being out in the market and trends, they don't have time to develop. So you don't have time to run the momentum that happens on things. So once a year is sufficient. So just make sure you're doing it annually. Damien, thanks for coming into our studio today. And thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. And if you get a chance, leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like to talk about via email, which is otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. See you next week.